Please open, if you will, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19. John chapter 19. This morning is Communion Sunday uh, in Calvary Chapels. The first Sunday of the month, we set aside to partake of communion together. And I love worshiping with God's people on any and every Sunday, but I especially love a Communion Sunday as we come together to the Lord's table. And as I was praying about what the Lord would have me to share with you today, he uh, put on my heart to share a message about the cross that would focus our mind, our heart, and our attention on what it is uh, that we get to do today. Uh, So often we partake of communion and we can do it as a matter of ritual or routine without really thinking about what it is that we do. And so this morning I want to I'll talk to you about uh, a passage in John chapter 19. The title of our Bible study is, It is Finished. It is Finished. And the text we're going to look at is in John chapter 19 and verse 30. As we come to study the Bible together, let's bow in prayer, can we? God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We thank you so much for the Bible and Thank you so much, Lord, for the every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, every word of the Bible. And Lord, today as we come to consider something Jesus said from the cross, we pray you would open our minds and our hearts and our understanding. Take us to the cross, we pray. Take us back in time from the 21st century to the 1st century. Take us back, Lord, to that ancient city of Jerusalem on that Good Friday. Take us back to that hill called Calvary where we can see the rocks and the crosses and we can hear the sounds, the sounds of the nails being hammered into the hands and feet of Jesus. Take us back, Lord, that we can hear the words that he spoke. Take us back there, Lord, and fill our hearts with love and thanksgiving and gratitude. We'll praise and thank you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 735 A.D., and the place was England. There was an old man. He was frail fragile. He was near death, but he was seeking to finish the most important work that he had done in the whole of his life. He's known as the Venerable Bede, and if you know anything about the history of England, you know he was a great Bible scholar and teacher, and he was an eminent church historian. But as he neared the end of his life, He wanted to do something no one had ever done in history, and that is to translate a book of the Bible into English. The Bible, of course, was in Latin and in some other languages, but no one had ever translated any part of the Bible into English, and he wanted his own people to be able to read the Bible in English. He only had time for one book of the Bible. What book of the Bible to translate? He decided of all the books of the Bible he wanted to translate, he would translate the Gospel of John. He had a young assistant named Wilbert, and hour after hour, in weakness and frailty, 
the old man would read the Latin and then say to the young man, write this down in English. Write this down in English. And chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, they went through the Gospel of John. And finally, they got to the 21st chapter in that last sentence. And he said, there's only one more sentence. And he said, write this down. All the things that Jesus did, the books of the world could not contain them. Amen. The young man wrote down those words, and Venerable Bede said, It is finished. And they brought him to his place of prayer by the window, and a few moments later, he breathed his last breath, and he died. That true story of what happened with the Venerable Bede is but a faint picture of what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross when Jesus uttered the most important words he would ever utter, the words, it is finished, as we will learn actually just one word that he uttered. These words are found in John chapter 19, verse 30, but to understand the text, you must understand the context. And so I invite you to follow along as I begin reading John chapter 19 and verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out and said to them, to the Jews, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin from then on. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend, for whoever make himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, Friday, Good Friday, about the sixth hour, that's reckoning with Roman time, six o'clock in the morning, he sat at the judgment seat, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, 
Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha, where they crucified him, two with him, one on one side, with Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also his tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one place. And they said among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, the other Gospels tell us her name was Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, four women. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's the apostle John, standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, the, the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple, John, took her, Mary, to his own home. After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it up to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Three words in English, but one word in Greek. The word tetelestai, T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I, tetelestai. Would you say with me that word? Tetelestai, one single word. The greatest word spoken by the greatest man on the greatest day in human history. One word, but no single word in any language ever invented in all of human history, so changed the world, so totally changed history as that one single word, tetelestai. 
To understand that word, the significance of that word, the beauty of that word, the importance of that word, there are three things I want to talk to you about in this message this morning. Number one, I want to talk to you about the setting. Number two, about the saying. And then number three, about the Savior. The first thing you need to understand to fully appreciate what Jesus said when he said to Telestai, when he said it is finished, is the setting. The words it is finished, you don't understand what those words really mean unless you understand the context, the setting in which those words are given. If you were to walk up these three steps to this platform, you could say, it is finished. I got to the top. But if you climb every step in the stairway that goes to the top of the Empire State Building and say, it is finished, something totally different. The words, it is finished, you need to consider the setting in which you find those words to fully appreciate what those words mean. You know, they tell us that Jewelers, when they want to show you a diamond, will take a diamond and they will lay it on a black piece of velvet. And the reason why is because the contrast of that black velvet makes the brilliance and the colors and the beauties of that diamond shine all the more brightly. And I want to suggest to you that the diamond of Tetelestai, the diamond of it is finished, you will never fully understand unless you put it in the right setting, unless you understand the context. And what is the context of the, setting, the saying, it is finished? It is the cross. The setting actually began the night before when Jesus went with his disciples into a garden. And knowing what was going to happen, he got down and began to pray. And three times he prayed, Oh God, Father, if there's any other way that this cup can pass from me, please, Lord, but not the less. Not my will yours be done. Not my will yours be done. Not my will but yours be done. And the Bible says he prayed with such intensity, with such agony, that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, and angels had to come and strengthen him. Or I believe he would have died right there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, that's the setting. And there, in such agony and prayer, he's betrayed by a close friend with a Judas kiss, with a traitor's kiss. And the Bible tells us a cohort, 600 Roman soldiers with temple guards, probably a thousand people with torches and swords come out to arrest him. And he's led away to the house of the high priest for a trial. I just did jury duty a couple of weeks ago. I can tell you what, they, they don't have trials in the middle of the night. It was a rush to judgment. It was a travesty of justice. He actually, listen, he actually went through six trials in six hours in the middle of the night. 
He was tried before Annas, who was the former high priest. Then he was taken to the house of Caiaphas for a second trial. Then he was taken before the whole Sanhedrin. Then he was taken before Pilate, our text mentions. Then he was taken before Herod. Then he was taken before Pilate again. And at 6 a.m., how many verdicts are rendered at 6 a.m.? It was a rush to judgment. It's totally unfair, totally illegal. But he went through all of that. And while he was going through all of that, he suffered unspeakable abuse. The soldiers and the guards repeatedly slapped him and punched him in the face. They spit in his face. They pulled out his beard. They put a sack, a bag over his head. Then they punched him in the face and said, prophesy, who is it who struck you? They put a purple robe on him to mock him as, as, oh, you're really the king of the Jews. They take a crown of thorns. They jam it down in on his skull. They take a reed as a mock scepter and they begin to bash him over the head with it. The crown of thorns being jammed down in his head. His face, listen, his visage so marred, you hardly even recognized who he was. And if that wasn't enough, Pilate had him scourged. Scourging, a vicious beating with what's called a cat of nine tails, a short wooden handle with nine strands of leather going out of it. And at the end of it, these little balls and sharp objects, whether metal or sheep bones or whatever it was. And there were two torture specialists, Romans, that would stand on one side or other of the victim. They would strip them all down, put them on their knees, wrap their arms around a pole. And then each of them would begin one side and then another. Whack, 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 going back and forth until the back of Jesus was nothing more than quivering, bleeding ribbons of flesh. His face totally pulverized. And then, as we read, they led him away to be crucified. How did they lead him away? Well, crucifixion in that time, they had a cross beam and then a vertical upright pole. So they put the cross beam on the shoulders of Jesus. He starts to walk through the city of Jerusalem, what's called the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, literally the way of pain. And after all that torture and abuse and blood loss, so weakened, he staggers under the weight of it. And they had to get somebody else help, to help him carry it to the place of the cross. And then when he got to the place of the cross, they took it off his shoulders. They laid it down in the dirt. They yank off his robe. They throw his bloody back down on the dirt there in the ground. And they take out nails. And they nail both of his hands to that crossbeam, they attach it to ropes, and then they start to hoist that crossbeam up, dragging the back of Jesus across the ground, dragging his back right up that wooden stake, locking it into position. Then they took out another nail, folded over his feet, nailed him on a little platform on the bottom of it. And the way they nailed him in is what made the cross so torturous, Crucifixion, that means of execution, was invented by the Persians, was used by the Greeks, but was perfected by the Romans. 
the ancient Jewish historian Klausner said, crucifixion was the most terrible, most cruel death a man ever devised. Cicero, a Roman historian, said, crucifixion was the most wicked, terrible torture anyone ever thought of. What made it so torturous, what made it so painful, is the position in which they nailed the person. They would nail him in a slouching position, and the reason why is the rib cage would push down on the diaphragm so the person couldn't breathe. To be able to breathe as they were hanging there, they had to push up with their legs to be able to take a breath in. But then in weakness, they would slouch back down and then they couldn't breathe. It's like they were suffocating. So they would have to push up again to catch another breath. And Jesus did that for six hours. The Bible tells us that he was crucified at 9 a.m., and he died at 3 p.m. For six hours, he is pushing up and down on that cross with his scourged back rubbing up against that wood, splintery, rough wood that was there, pushing up just so he could breathe. Oh, listen, such agony, such torture, such pain, such suffering. That is the setting of the words. It is finished. You cannot read those words. You cannot hear those words without thinking about where Jesus was when he said those words. C.S. Lewis wrote, Do you see? The buzzing flies about the cross. Do you see the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake? Do you see the nails driven through the mesial nerves? Do you see the repeated torture of back and arms as time after time, for breath's sake, Christ hitches up and down on the cross, he writes, herein is love. The cross is the diagram of love. The old songwriter writes a question. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, to tremble, to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We've considered the setting. Now consider the saying. For six long hours, Jesus hung on that cross. For six long hours, Jesus pushed up and down on that cross. But Jesus wasn't silent on the cross. Jesus actually spoke from the cross. And when Jesus hung on that cross, 
He turned that cross into a pulpit and he preached the greatest message ever preached from that cross. Seven times he spoke out from that cross. The seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23 and verse 34 says, He pushed himself up and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, oh, what a message in that saying. In Luke 23 verse 43, the Bible says he pushed up again, grabbed a breath and said to the thief next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, what a message of forgiveness and cleansing of sin, and the hope of heaven he was preaching from that cross. In John 19, verse 26 and 27, that we read, Jesus pushes up on the cross. He grabs a breath. He looks down at his mother and says, Behold your son, pointing to John. And then he looks at John and says, Behold your mother, pointing to Mary. Oh, What a message he was preaching. The Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And there he was doing it, hanging in agony and excruciating pain on the cross. Oh, what a message he was preaching. For three hours, he hung there in daylight. But then all of a sudden, darkness came and darkness upon the whole earth, not a part of the earth the whole earth, and as he's hanging in darkness there in the middle of his suffering and agony, a picture of the wrath of God coming, he pushes up again. (gasps) He grabs a breath and he shouts, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? As he starts to bear your sin and my sin and the sin of all human beings for all of human history in the history of the world. And he's hanging there in suffering and agony as he gets near the end and he pushes up and takes a breath and says, I thirst. You can only begin to imagine the physical cost to his human body, the raging thirst that he must have had in that moment. But then in Luke 23 and verse 46, he pushed up and said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Seven times he pushed up and spoke out, but of all of the things that he said from the cross, The most important thing he said from the cross, we see in John 19 and verse 30, as he neared the very end, he pushed up, he took a breath, and he said, it is finished. He actually said just one word. It's translated three words in English, but one word in Greek, the word to telestai. 
So significant, so important, so impacting was that word. He couldn't have chosen a better word than, than that word in any language ever invented in the history of the world. The great Puritan writer Charles Simeon said, Since the foundation of the world, there never was a single word uttered more important than to die." Every word indeed that proceeded from our Savior's lips deserves the most attentive consideration, but to eclipses them all. To do justice to it is beyond the ability of men or even of angels. Its height and depth and length and breadth are absolutely unsearchable. I agree. The great Hebrew scholar A.C. Gabeline said, Never before and never after was ever spoken one word which contains and means so much as the word to Telestai. Who can ever measure the depths of this one word? The great London preacher Charles Spurgeon agrees. He says, To Telestai contains an ocean of meaning. In one single word, it would take all the other words that were ever spoken or ever written to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is so high, I cannot attain it. It is so deep, I cannot fathom it. I believe that it will take all of eternity for every one of us to fully understand what was meant in that one word, to Telestine. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he spoke that word. When you think about the history of the world and you think about how many countries there are in the world and you think about how many languages there are in the world and you think about in all of those languages of the world how many words there are in the world, of all of the words in human history that Jesus could have ever said on that cross, the most important word was one word he chose to tell us die. Jesus knew Hebrew. He was a rabbi. Jesus knew Aramaic. That was the common language of the Jews. But when he pushed up on the cross that day, on that Good Friday, he didn't use a Hebrew word. He didn't use an Aramaic word. He deliberately chose a Greek word, the word tetelestai. And he did it with full understanding. He did it with full meaning. Our problem, our problem is we just read the Bible, don't really study the Bible, and we don't really understand the significance of that. You hear the word tetelestai, and you think, yeah, I've kind of heard that once before, but you don't really appreciate it. But the people around the cross in that day, they knew exactly what he was talking about. There couldn't have been more fitting word, no more important word than that word to Telestai. Because in ancient times, in the days of Jesus, that word was a very common word. It was used by no less than eight different groups or kinds of people. 
want to describe some of it to you. So you understand what was in the minds of the people around the cross that day when they heard Jesus shout, Tetelestai. Tetelestai in the days of Jesus was a word that was used by servants. If a master had a servant, the master would call the servant in and give the servant a job, a duty, a work, an assignment to do, and the servant would go out and do that duty. And when the duty was done, when the work was done, the servant would come back into the master, and he would say to the master, to Telestai, it's done. And Jesus, listen, was the greatest servant of all. You remember in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13, where Jesus where God says of Jesus, behold, my servant. And then in chapter 53, he describes in detail what the suffering servant would be like, a perfect picture of Jesus. You remember what Jesus said in Mark 10 and verse 45, when he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 4 and verse 34, Jesus said, my meat, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work he sent me to do. In John 17 and verse 4, Jesus said, I glorify thee on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. Jesus was the servant, the suffering servant, and he pushed up and said, Tetelestai, work done. But Tetelestai was also used in ancient times of priests, especially the high priest. Jesus died on the Passover. The Passover was when they sacrificed a lamb to remember the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts so death would pass over them in Egypt. The lambs for sacrifice were raised in Bethlehem. Then they were brought up near the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And the high priest, he would go through the flock of the lambs and he was looking for a lamb looking for a lamb. Exodus 12, verse 3, said it had to be a male lamb without spot, without any blemish. And he would look, 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 look. And then he would find that one lamb. He would look at the lamb and say, Tetelestai. Perfect. That's the perfect lamb. And Jesus was the perfect lamb. In John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Paul said, Christ is our Passover. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter writes, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. Jesus was not only the lamb, he was the priest. He was the priest offering himself. Hebrews 7, 27, Jesus does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then the sins of the people. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Oh, Tetelestai. But Tetelestai was not only used of servants and priests. It was used, interestingly, of artists. An artist would pull out canvas and paints and begin to paint. And the image would begin to emerge, color after color after color. And finally, when that last dot of paint was put on the canvas, 
the artist would stand back and look at it and say, Tetelestai is perfect. Do you know what? From the Old Testament up to the time of Jesus, there was a picture of redemption that was being painted. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, it says, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. God had in his mind what the painting would look like. And all the prophecies, and all the types, and all the images... They were being painted, 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 painted. And when Jesus, listen, hung there on that cross, it was like the last dot of paint going on the canvas. And he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. Because Colossians 2 and verse 17 says, everything in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was to come. But the substance, the reality, is in Christ. But the telestai was not only used by servants, it was not only used by priests, it was not only used by artists, it was used by writers. A writer would begin to write a book, word by word, <laughs> line by line, chapter by chapter, a long, 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 long book. And finally, the author would get to the end of the book and he would write the last word and put a little dot. He would put a period at the end and he would look at his book and he would say, Tetelestai, it's done. And my Bible says in Hebrews 12 and verse 2 that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The story of redemption was being written, 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 written. And when the story was done, Jesus pushed up and said, Tetelestai. But Tetelestai not only used of servants and priests and artists and writers, it was also used of merchants, of bill collectors. A person in ancient times would go in debt for some piece of property or something that they owed, and they would have to make payments on that. And when they finally made their last payment, they would go to the the bill collector, the merchant, the banker, whoever, and he would write across the bill, Tetelestai, the final payment was made. In ancient times, sometimes people would come into hard times and they would have to even sell themselves into slavery, having no way to pay it back. They would have to depend on some gracious person who would be kind and go to their creditor and say, I'll make the payment for that person. And they would pay it in full. And the creditor would write across that bill, Tetelestai paid in full. And that's what Jesus has done for us. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 says, He wiped out the certificate of debt against us nailing it to his cross. When he pushed up and said to Telestai, it meant the debt for your sin is paid in full, nothing more to pay. It's interesting to me, archaeologists digging in Egypt discovered the office of an ancient CPA. And in that office, they found a stack of bills and as they started thumbing through these bills, to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai, to Telestai, as I look out at you, you're like that stack of bills. To Telestai, to Telestai, the debt for your sin, the debt for my sin was paid in full. I like the old chorus that we used to sing. He paid a debt 
he did not owe. I owed a debt. I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, but now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. Oh, Tetelestai. But Tetelestai was also used of a judge in ancient Rome when a Roman citizen was convicted of a crime. They would take and write on a document what crime that person had committed and what justice, what sentence that person had to pay for their crime. And they would put that certificate on the cell door of the prisoner. One year, two years, he's committed murder. He's committed robbery. One year, two years, ten years, whatever it was. And when that person had paid their sentence, they were there the amount of time that justice required they would take that certificate, they would take it to the judge, and the judge would write across that certificate, Tetelestai! The sentence, the punishment has been paid for. And then they would give that certificate to the criminal and set him free. He's wandering around town. They're like, what are you doing out here? You're supposed to be in jail. And he would just hold up his little certificate, Tetelestai! And this is what Jesus has done for you. And for me, the Bible says in Romans 8 and verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus went in the cell. Jesus did the time. Jesus was declared guilty. So we would be declared not guilty. Oh, I love the word, to Tetelestai. Tetelestai, the servant finishing his work. Tetelestai, the priest choosing the lamp, to Tetelestai, the artist finishing his work, to Tetelestai, the debts paid, to Tetelestai, the books written, to Tetelestai, not guilty. But to Tetelestai was also used of a runner, of a runner, like in a marathon. The gun would go off and the runners would go out and the runner would run and run and run and run and run. So long a race, so tiring of a race, so grueling of a race. The runner would think, I just want to stop. I don't want to keep doing this. Why am I doing this? Their body racked with pain and agony, but they kept running and running and running and running and running. And then they would see out in the distance the finish line. They would see the tape across the finish line and they would run. They would take a breath and they would run all the way through and when they crossed the finish line the runner would say to Telestai I finished I did it then Jesus ran the race for you and me he ran the example for you and me in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus who for the joy that was set before him who's that you and me who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the throne of God. Oh, Jesus ran right through and said to Telestai, but then 
Then to Telestai in ancient times was also used of a military general. What would happen is a king would have an enemy and he would call in his general and he would say, I have something for you to do. I want you to go and wage war against our enemy and I want you to destroy him. I want you to demolish him. I want you to crush and defeat him. And the general would say, yes, sir. (laughs) And he would gather his army, and he would go out, and he would utterly destroy that enemy, and he would come back to the palace, into the chamber of the king, and he would stand before the king and say, Tetelestai, (laughs) enemy defeated, battle won. And that's exactly what Jesus did. See, because we have an enemy of our soul, the devil. And in the Garden of Eden, the devil tempted Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin. But in the moment they fell into sin, God spoke to the serpent that day in Genesis 3. And he said, here's the deal. I'm going to put in me between your seed and the seed of the woman. You're going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross is that very thing. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. He was defeating Satan. In Hebrews 2 and verse 14, the Bible says, Through death, Jesus destroyed him who has the power of death, the devil. In Colossians 2 and verse 15, the Bible says, Jesus defeated principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Jesus knew for century after century what was said in the Garden of Eden, and everyone hoping, when's the Messiah going to come and crush the serpent's head? And Jesus hanging there on that cross, suffering in agony, pushes up, takes a breath, and says, Tetelestai, enemy defeated, battle won. Oh, I say to you, there is no more beautiful word in all the languages of the world. There is no more fitting word that Jesus could have chosen than that one single word, Tetelestai, because the painting of salvation was finished, because the writer had written the very last line, because the debt was fully paid, because the judge said, not guilty, you can go free, because the runner had finished the race, because the general had won the victory. Oh, it is finished, it is finished, it is finished for you and for me. Knowing that ought to fill your heart with gratitude and thanksgiving. Jesus didn't pay paint the painting, and then say, now, why don't you come finish the last part? (laughs) Jesus didn't write the book and then say, now, you finish the last line. Jesus didn't pay most of the debt. Say, now, you got to work really hard to pay the rest of it. Jesus didn't say, well, I've served some of the time now. You're going to have to bear some of the punishment. Jesus didn't just run part of the way. He ran all the way. He didn't just defeat some of your enemies. He totally destroyed the enemy of your soul and salvation. And when you think of that, 
It should take your breath away. It should take you back in awe and wonder. It's like a song I sometimes think of called To Think of the Cross. Back in the Jesus People movement, there was an artist named Randy Matthews who wrote such a great song. I love the words he wrote. He wrote long, long ago in a faraway place. Rough, rugged timber was raised to the sky. There hung a man suspended in space. And though he was blameless, they left him to die. To think of the cross, it moves me now. The nails in his hands, his bleeding brow. To think of the cross, it moves me now. It should have been me. It should have been me. Instead, I am free. I am free. I am free. But there's a third thing I want you to think about in our message this morning, and that is the Savior. We've looked at the setting and the saying, but the Savior. We've looked at where Jesus said what he said. We've looked at what Jesus said. But who is the one who said it? Listen to me. The only one who could say it. There is only one person who ever walked this earth in all of human history who could ever utter the word to Telestai on that cross, who could ever say, it is finished. Why? Because Jesus and only Jesus was the sinless Son of God. See, to die in your place and my place required that he would be sinless. The wages of sin is death. I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned. So since I've sinned, I've got to die for my own sin. Even if you wanted to die for me, it wouldn't work because you're a sinner. So you have to die for your sin. The only way that someone could die for another person is if that person was sinless. Then they could say, okay, I'll take that person's sin on me. I'll die so they don't have to die. I'll be their substitute. And only one person who ever walked this planet was sinless. In 1 John 3 and verse 5, John writes, You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. In 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. In 2 Corinthians 5, and verse 21, I love this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But here's the thing. To die for you, for me, for all of us, Jesus couldn't just be a sinless man. As a sinless man, he could die for me, or he could die for you, or he could die for someone else, but he could only die for one person because he was only a man. 
in order to die for you and for me and for the sins of the world, Jesus needed to be the God-man. He needed not only to be sinless, but the sinless Son of God. And that he was. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, who be, Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Oh, what a Savior! He's the only one who could ever say from that cross to Telestai because he and only he was the sinless Son of God. And that's why we love him. That's why we praise him. That's why we honor him. That's why we glorify him. That's why we worship him. There was a hymn writer named Philip Bliss who wrote a song about Jesus that I like so much. He wrote the wonderful hymn called Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. First verse, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Second verse, varying shame. And scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Verse 3, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. The final verse, lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Dear ones, I pray that whenever you think of the cross, you'll never forget the word to tell us Dear ones, I pray whenever you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, you will never Forget that word, tetelestai, it is finished. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for our Bible study today. We thank you so much for these beautiful words in the Gospel of John. And we thank you for this one word that Jesus spoke to tell us die. We thank you. It's all done. It's perfected. It's finished. There's nothing left to do. All we have to do is just believe. Just believe on him who suffered and died and took our place. Who paid our debt who took our guilt, who bore our shame. And Lord, I pray, as we now partake of communion together, I just, I pray so much, Lord, today would be a very special time of communion. We've just thought about all it means that our Savior did for us. Lord, may 
our hearts be filled with such worship, such love, such gratitude. Bless us, Lord, as we worship you and partake of communion. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. We're going to partake of communion together in a moment. Those who are going to service will pass.